Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We're here to to, uh, do our final, really, truly preseason podcast of the year. When we come back at you later this week, we'll we'll be talking opening weekend pretty much exclusively. So today we're going to try and wrap up uh, as much preseason kind of at-large content as we can. But first, I got to tell you that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe. We're here on uh, game week. Opening opening week is uh, is is here. We're, we're a few days away from the games still, uh, but that's an exciting time. And I think it's uh, it's probably a thing that's warming up a lot of people around the country. It's one of those times where if you look at a national weather map, pretty much everyone outside of SoCal and Florida is is uh, looking pretty chilly out there, but. They are going to play baseball this week and uh, a lot to to be excited about on that front. Yeah, congratulations to Miami and Florida for playing the only warm series on over opening weekend, apparently, or at least if it was at least if it were to be played now, I suppose by the weekend, maybe things will have changed a little bit. But I, I saw one of those said maps this morning and even Southern California was what I would call a couple standard deviations colder than what we would define as unseasonably cold. It was like the really South Florida was like the only place where it kind of seemed like to, to track with what we would normally expect. So with that in mind, I would like to apologize. I know I've made the crack on the podcast before that I joke with people that, uh, you know, college baseball is around the corner when the weather gets really, really cold and I never expected uh, this would happen. So I'd like to apologize for angering some, someone out there, angering mother nature, if you will, about making those jokes. And I, I tweeted, Teddy, when you tweeted about the cancellation of, I guess it was UNC Kentucky, maybe. Oh, no, that was COVID related. So it, um, I don't yeah, know we'll what get it to was. that. No, it's uh, Wichita and yeah, uh, Wichita. Northern Colorado. That's right. And which, by the way, you know, we've kind of made, as I tweeted, eliminate out of limits with that Wichita State in Oklahoma, not a bad little series opening weekend. So now that's not much of a sad for Southern and uh, Northern Colorado, but, um, but for college baseball, it's a good series. But you know, I've made that joke before, and it's it's only funny, I guess, until weather actually starts really affecting people's schedules, and then it's it's not quite uh, quite that funny. So we'll have to see how it ends up shaking out this weekend. Uh, you know, uh, still a few days to go, and things will warm up a little bit in, in a lot of places, but not everywhere. The rest of the week is uh, don't look ahead, folks, but the rest of the week in a lot of places is not particularly pretty either. So I wouldn't be surprised. Between uh, we're probably due for a few more COVID cancellations before the weekend is here um, and in a few more weather. So just kind of hold on tight. The opening weekend might be a little bit of a, a bumpy ride. And, and why would we have expected any different? Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get to some of that early uh, pandemic related stuff in a second, but this weather that's affecting the whole country, like I said, but, but especially this weekend, it matters uh, in the Southeast broadly defined, because that's where most of the college baseball is going to try and be played this weekend, plenty of stuff happening on the West coast, but again, it's not, weather's not as bad out that way, but you know, the, what's rolling through the deep South and Texas right now, uh, 
uh, you know, there's snow on the ground in places like Corpus Christi, Lake Charles, Louisiana, Oxford, Mississippi. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's very unusual. I would assume that most of that's going to be melted, although I, you know, forecasts change. There's more snow depending on where you are. That's predicted. Um, but beyond that, I, I would also suggest, though, that travel is, uh, is something that if you're just thinking at it, about it and you're looking at Friday and you're seeing good weather then, well, you got to get there first. And uh, so just, just getting to some of these series, it's going to be more complicated uh, this weekend, apparently. Uh, that, that's certainly the way it looks right now anyway. So uh, some of these cancellations might not truly be because of the weather on, over the weekend. It might be because traveling on on Thursday or on Wednesday, whatever, uh, is is harder than uh, than it normally is. But Joe, as a as a Texas native, have you ever seen snow in Corpus Christi? Is that like a thing that ever happens? Because that was the one that I saw that I was like, wait, what? Yeah, no, 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 no. Like, I think one of the things that people don't fully understand about Texas sometimes is they 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 think of Texas and they think warm and, and that's true, especially when you get along the coast and when you get into deep South Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, I mean, that is, that is warm. That's, you know, tropical in some places, desert climate in some places, but it's, it's typically warm. And th so that is, that is the case. But when you kind of, when you get into North Texas and I don't just mean Dallas Fort Worth, I mean, there is a lot of Texas still North of that. Like you really do get, four seasons in a lot of cases and, and you get, you do get, you don't get so much like snow, you get ice in a lot of those places, but yeah, I mean, snow down in, in that part of Texas is pretty rare. And I will say I've seen friends and family that I still have living in Houston are putting pictures out on social media of snowfall that, that I'd never experienced before. I've spent basically my first 26 years of my life in Houston. And I'd, we, we'd get the occasional snow once every few years, we'd get some snow and, I remember one when I was in college that, you know, stayed on the ground for most of the day and, and maybe perhaps the full day, but that was the extent of it. But I, the snow that I've seen in social media from, from people who still live there is it's like snow where you need to have boots on because it, you know, it's, it's, you know, up above the, you know, where your, the soles of your shoes are like, it's, it's crunching underneath your feet. And that's just, I'd never experienced snow like that in, in all my years in Houston. So uh, until I moved to Midwest, I'd not seen snow like that. So this is on another level different. And not only is it just an accumulation that's different, but also if you look ahead in the forecast, this is kind of what I was alluding to. You look ahead into the forecast and, and in some places like up towards Dallas, they are predicting more snow this week. But even in Houston, the temperatures are going to stay low enough for the next couple of days that it's not just a situation where the snow is just good. tomorrow. The sun's going to come out and the snow is just going to disappear and it's all going to kind of run off. The snow is probably going to be there for a couple of days. And in, in a place that doesn't have a lot of snow infrastructure, like I don't know how many snow plows the city of Houston has, for example, if they have any, but it's not going to be enough. And so that, that snow is going to just kind of stay there. So you mentioned the travel and I don't know that it'll affect me when I'm speaking just to the Houston, uh, Houston area, but just generally to your point, you're talking about a lot of places that don't have the infrastructure to deal with snow. And if the temperatures doesn't even have to snow anymore, if the temperatures just stay cold over the next few days, the road situation, if they're busing somewhere might not get a lot better between now and Thursday. 
And that's what kind of the trouble is. And I would suspect a lot of the Houston area will be in that boat, especially if you live kind of in the outlying suburbs or the exurbs where you're just not going to get as much traffic or as much attention through. Um, it could be a situation where the roads end up being pretty dangerous for, for a while now, because that's just not, if you do get snow down there, you typically within a couple days, you're going to have a 60 degree and sunny day that's just going to melt all that snow in a snap of a finger. And, and then of course you have to worry about a little bit of flooding situation because it all just, it melts and has to go somewhere. But I don't think it's going to be the case this time. It's going to be a little bit of a slow burn and that's what's going to make it complicated, not just in Texas, but really everywhere in the deep south. The, uh, the big thing to be watching in terms of Texas on opening weekend is, of course, the tournament uh, in Arlington um, with uh, three SEC and three Big 12 schools. Um, that is a dome. They, they built a retractable roof in Arlington this time. But, you know, so I've, I've, I've been on radio stations, you know, where people are talking about like, oh, at least there's a dome. Like, we know they'll get the games in. But... Yeah, if they if you can get if you can all get there, they'll be able to play. Uh, but the the that is one thing to be to be aware of ahead of one of the biggest tournaments, the biggest tournament, I guess, one of the biggest uh, events of opening weekend this year. Uh, so yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep tracking that. We'll uh, we'll hopefully have more clarity when we come back uh, next or not next week in a few days. Uh, to do our our opening opening weekend preview podcast. The other thing that we alluded to there is that there has now already been a first coronavirus cancellation of the 2021 season. Kentucky was supposed to make the trip to North Carolina to play the Tar Heels this weekend. That will not be happening because of some issues within the Wildcats program uh, between contract contact tracing and quarantines and, and the rest of it. Um, they believe they are still on track to play Miami of Ohio the following weekend, but uh, this weekend, Kentucky uh, is is out. North Carolina's looking for another another series. I don't think I would just this is just a guess based on how other sports have gone. I don't think that that's going to be the only one uh, of these series that that runs into some sort of a problem. I've also seen a couple stray players are missing already because of COVID uh, for this weekend. Notably, All-American Ryan Webb at Georgia is uh, is out. Um, and there's a report that, or I guess Mike Bianco told reporters in Oxford that uh, one of his players will not be available this weekend, Chase Parnum of, uh, I believe he's with the rival site there at Ole Miss, he's reported that that is Kale Baker, uh, Ole Miss's big slugger, who will be out this weekend. Again, there will be more of those as well. So, Joe, I mean, we're not surprised that any anything is happening here. Um, you know, no way to predict which series would and wouldn't have been affected. But uh, it's really unfortunate that North Carolina loses this weekend against Kentucky. Uh, not only does that potentially throw throw back the start of the Scott Forbes era in Chapel Hill. It also is the only weekend UNC can play non-conference games. The ACC going to 12 conference weekends uh, means the conference play starts next weekend for almost the entire conference. I think only Clemson and Louisville aren't starting next weekend. And that's because every other school in the conference has, you know, 
some finals rules that either they have to be off during finals, which applies to North Carolina, or they have to be at home during finals. And all of that basically led to the rest of the ACC having to start uh, in week two of the, the season. So UNC, this is, this is the one non-conference uh, you know, weekend of, of the year. And you know, hopefully they're able to find something uh, because you know, it's going to start in a hurry uh, otherwise for them with, uh, I believe it's Virginia coming down in, in week two. Yeah, a couple, uh, yeah, a couple of bangers here locally. ACC play first weekend because Georgia Tech is also coming to NC State, so both of those schools are going to get right into the thick of it. But yeah, it also this cancellation has also affected uh, me because that was where I was going this weekend. I will not be going there, so your boy is probably hanging out on the couch this weekend, and that's okay because um, it's going to be pretty chilly anyway. So, um, and because of COVID, a lot of, and you know, no one's shedding tears for me, nor should they. However, uh, most in most places, not all places, I suspect this year at games I attend, which will be a smaller number than it has been in the past, uh, the places that are allowing media, because not all places are, the ones that are, a pretty significant subset of those are, will have media seating outside. So it's one of those things where, you know, it adds another layer of decision-making to the situation. Do I want to go sit outside in this place? What does the weather look like it's going to do? All that, all that kind of stuff. But so it has affected me in that way. But you're all, all the above is right. I'm actually a little bit surprised that it's the only one we've heard of so far, at least high profile. Uh, Fordham also has gone on a pause. They will go on a pause through 228, February 28th, which affects five that games. Ultimately only affects one game this weekend, though. Weirdly, they Correct. were playing Villanova in a one-off a little one on off, Saturday. Yeah. Most of the games they're losing, they're, the rest of the games they're losing are all against Sacred Heart. Yeah. They're playing four or five straight games over the course of like a week. Yeah, that's uh, that is a classic. Uh, this is a COVID season, and we're trying to limit travel and, in some cases, budgets and all that kind of stuff. A classic, classic example: one game against Villanova opening weekend, then yeah, like four or five straight against Sacred Heart. So, interesting little little schedule quirk there. But yeah, so that gets wiped out for Fordham. But I, I'm a little surprised we haven't seen more. And you're right about UNC. I mean, they're I have to imagine they're working really hard to the chances. I think of a full series, um, just given the limitations of especially with the weather, right? Like this is at an, this is another place where the weather really hurts because normally you could see a situation where depending on how desperate UNC is, you know, you and this is UNC we're talking about, they could probably get on a bus and be pretty liberal about how far they're willing to drive to go get some games in just to get some games. But the situation weather-wise is going to kind of limit that because we are kind of fully surrounded by places that have been affected by ice and snow here. So that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do and vice versa, right? Like UNC could probably pay to have somebody come in here, but who's going to be willing to do that that has A, the openings, and B, is going to want to make that travel on just a terrible weather week. So I would suspect that UNC is working pretty hard to see if they can't maybe latch on to some series that's already happening. There are some teams locally here that are at home that might involve UNC maybe playing some games. And there's, some there's one of those that I, I have not talked to Scott Forbes about this, but Campbell is hosting Liberty. Liberty is coached by Scott Jackson, yep, that, who worked with Scott Forbes at UNC. Uh, it's very local. I wouldn't be stunned if that is like the absolute fallback option that they somehow get in on that action. But I mean, the, the right now with them being still a few days out, you know, we'll see who else winds up looking if anyone else winds up looking. Uh, and I also have done literally like, I, I haven't looked around to see 
if there's a, a already a multi-team event that that UNC could could maybe get in on. But uh, that was definitely the first place my my mind went was like, oh well, Campbell and Liberty, like it's uh, it's happening in Bowie's Creek, which is like thirty to forty minutes away from Chapel Hill. Like I I wonder. So we'll see. That one does make a lot of sense. I had not seen that one. I, I, um, just from a standpoint of like, it's reasonably quality competition. Bryant is going to high point. So if they wanted to maybe get in on that and try to get a game with Bryant and one with Bryant, one with high point, like that's um, not, not a bad little series just to kind of get out there and, and get something done. Um, you know, normally there would be some sort of multi-team event going on at coastal, but Coastal's playing a little bit of a different schedule this year. They're not doing as much of that. So that's kind of out. I don't know what UNCW is doing. They, typically do a lot of tournaments, but I don't think they're doing as much of that this year without having it in front of me. So options are a little bit limited there, but I suspect because they do start so quickly with ACC play, um, I think more so than normal, they are going to be extremely motivated to do basically anything to get out there and at least get, get something done opening weekend because you just don't want to go into the first week of ACC play cold. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, UNCW has VCU coming in this weekend for scheduled for four games. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would fully expect UNC to find their way into at least a game or two this weekend, if not a full on series. We'll just have to uh, to wait and see as as things unfold this week. Obviously, scheduling baseball happens sometimes pretty quickly anyway. Uh, when you run into some weather considerations, this is not unheard of opening weekend that some teams are out there looking because of, of poor weather leading to, to series being canceled early on. Um, but it's going to happen more often this year. So flexibility, as, as we've mentioned several times before, going to going to be paramount throughout uh, throughout the season here. All right, uh, Joe, we're going to get into our crystal ball picks that we made for uh, a variety of, of uh, awards and honors uh, throughout uh, both both teams and players, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, we're going to get into those, our, our rationale behind some of those picks and, and some of the other uh, contenders beyond the, the players and teams that we selected. Uh, we're going to get into that here in a second, but first, check this out. All right, Joe, so our crystal ball picks, we make this these picks every year for the magazine. They've been, they've been going in the mag well before you and I were in our current jobs. I, I suspect they've been going back decades at this point. So the, the categories that we, we typically are picking here are a national champion, a Omaha sleeper, which is defined as a team not in the top 25, Player of the year, pitcher of the year, freshman of the year. Uh, Joe, let's just start here with national champion. That uh, seems like a logical place to start and an easy place to start as you and I both selected Florida. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, we really like Florida here. They're the preseason number one team. They return almost everyone from a team that was ranked number one when last season was halted. Uh, that includes the entire rotation. It includes the entire pitching staff. Uh, they have the best bullpen in the country. They have one of the best rotations in the country. Their lineup is going to be exceptionally deep. They defend at a really high level. It's hard to really find fault with this team. So it's no surprise then, Joe, that that both of us pick them. Uh, I don't really know how much more we have to say about Florida. Uh, we're going to talk about Florida a lot more 
coming up uh, this weekend. They play Miami in one of the marquee uh, series of the weekend, really the marquee series. You can argue about whether that series is bigger than the tournament in Arlington or not, but those are those are the two big things happening this weekend. So I don't really want to get too much into the Gators here, uh, but did you consider any team other than Florida for this national championship pick? Nope. Next. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I did not really either. I mean, both of us, we've talked before how we like UCLA, but yeah, that, that, was, that was the easiest pick for me. Well, and, you know, I, I'm willing to, I don't think people will be shocked to hear this. You know, we're creating content here, right? And it's not necessarily interesting if you and I just sat here and agreed on everything. So when we go into these crystal ball picks, sometimes you and I will talk a little bit and back channel to, to, to ask, Hey, are you, what are you, what are you thinking here? What are you thinking on this? Because if I'm in a situation where I've got two or three guys, I'm for a player example, two or three players, I'm kind of debating for one of these spots. And you tell me you're definitely going with, with player a, like it might make me lean a little more towards choosing player B and C just to make it a little more interesting and, and to, to, you know, have that little comparison. Right. So I'm willing to do that when it's kind of a toss up in situations, but this one was, you know, to choose anyone, no disrespect to UCLA who we've spoken glowingly about in the past on this podcast recently, but I just don't think there was any real choice here. I mean, it's, it's gotta be Florida given what they return, what they bring in all of the reasons we've talked about ad nauseum. So really excited to actually get the season started so we can see what it looks like out there on the field, because, you know, we sure have talked a lot, understandably so about how excited we are to, to see what it looks like and, and how good they can be. Yeah, I do not like us to double up if we can avoid it. There was no avoiding it on this one. I didn't even did not even ask for you to reconsider or ask myself to reconsider. We just we pressed on with that. Uh, we'll return to Omaha Sleeper here in a minute, but let's talk about player of the year. And this is an area where we probably both could have picked the same player. Uh, you picked Adrian Del Castillo, Miami's catcher. And I certainly could have, uh, you know, he is, he's an exceptional hitter. He's hit since day one at Miami. He's improving as a defensive catcher. Uh, you know, so that makes him one of the more valuable players on the field, you know, just by virtue of being a very good hitting catcher. Uh, so he's certainly a leading, leading contender, if not the clear cut favorite for this award. Uh, but I went with Alex Benellis, Louisville's third baseman. Uh, he was base. He played two games last year. Basically, uh, didn't play after the. I think he has like five at bats on the season or something because he broke his hamate in Louisville's second game of the season at Ole Miss, and he would have returned from that injury had the season continued. But of course, it did not. Um, but if you go back to 2019 as a freshman, he hit, you know, 291, 14 homers, uh, 383 on base, 612 slugging. He's a guy that could definitely hit 20 home runs this, this spring anchor Louisville's lineup. Um, you know, I, I, I think that he has, he has a lot of potential to, to do some really great offensive things and like, uh, like Del Castillo, Benelis has improved defensively and, and he's playing a, a solid third base. And so I, I, I like his his potential in the middle of the order for Louisville. I like that you picked him as well, just from the standpoint of, I think it's easy to forget about him a little bit because we've talked a lot about how it's easy to forget about so many of these guys that were freshmen in 19 
and then 2020 happened and now they're going into draft years and we don't know a ton about them. It's even more so for Benellis because it, like you mentioned, he missed most of that 2020 season. So he's really been out of sight, out of mind for an even longer amount of time. So it is easy to kind of forget about him. So I, I, I appreciate that you picked him because it, it really brings it to the front of mind for people that how talented this guy is and how big of a season could be in front of him here. I went with Del Castillo for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. He's such a well-rounded hitter. Like it's, it's a good hit tool. It's good power. There's, you know, there's really not, he's, he's not a guy who's swinging from the heels and, and selling out for power. He's also not a guy who's, you know, looking to slap balls the other way. Like he's just a really well-rounded hitter. And I think it's important. This is not a defensive award. Uh, you did mention he's improved defensively. I, you know, our draft guy, Carlos Clazo has heard good things about him defensively. He, Carlos likes him, I think, even more than I do as a player. He's really high on him. But I think what's important about the catching piece is, is yes, if you can also be a plus defender or even just a, you know, an average defender, a catcher, and do what he can do offensively, I think it does help your case. But also I think it's important that catching in Division One baseball is hard. Like, and I don't just mean skill-wise, that's true, but physically. And he's beyond the point now where, you know, he's kind of broken through that wall. Like he knows what it's like to kind of, not, maybe not over a full season because he did play a lot of outfield in 2019, but this is not new for him now. He kind of understands the rigors of division one catching a full season might be a little bit of a new thing, but I'm confident he can handle it more so than maybe last year and certainly in, in 2019. So um, I think that's all part of the maturation process and part of why I think he's poised for the type of season that I think he can have. Yeah, absolutely. No, no argument on that from me. I would say, I I can see several players winning this award, of course. I, I think that a couple that we didn't pick, uh, Matt McLean certainly might stand out to people uh, as a former first-round pick and the first-team All-American shortstop. Hard to argue with his case. Uh, I, personally, I just he doesn't have quite the gaudy offensive numbers of of del castillo or Benellis, but if you look at the whole holistic uh, approach what he can do defensively to impact a game offensively to impact a game you know base running all the rest of it he's great at all of that so could could see him getting in the mix judd fabian in a kind of similar way uh florida's center fielder he's uh He's got more power than uh, than a McLean, but just a really well-rounded player overall. He's definitely going to be in the mix, especially as the, with the potential to be the first uh, first position player drafted. Uh, he'll, he'll he'll be in the mix heavily for that. I uh, I'm I'm interested, Joe, if you think either Colton Kowser or Ethan Wilson, the other two first-team All-American outfielders, obviously coming from. A little bit smaller schools, not like true mid-majors uh, in South Alabama and Sam Houston State. It, it makes it a little harder because they're going to be facing uh, a little bit lesser pitching than you see in the SEC or the Pac-12 or or the or the ACC. Um, yes, and they're they're doing it for schools that at least aren't in the top twenty-five right now. So it takes a little bit more from from those kinds of schools to win it but we, we've seen Kyle Lewis do it recently do you think either of those players uh, could get in this player of the year mix by the end of the season yeah I certainly don't think there's any reason they can't 
they've shown that there's there they are those types of talents. So the thing about Kowser too is that it does hurt that these two guys are playing in smaller leagues. Um, the thing about Kowser though is that more so than Wilson is that Kowser's going to see some pitching in Southland play that he should just be able to really dominate and overwhelm, especially when he faces off against teams that are in the back half of that conference. There is a softer part of the Sun Belt, but I think on balance, the Sun Belt is just a stronger league top to bottom. I don't think there's a ton of argument about that. So I think there is a scenario where talent just really takes over with Colton Kowser and he puts up numbers that are just kind of undeniable. It's kind of in the same way that, frankly, Kyle Lewis was able to do it. Wilson, though, I, I think it's easy for me to kind of gloss over the fact that this dude hit 17 home runs in 2019, and that's just production on a level that Colton Kowser hasn't gotten to. I think maybe Colton Kowser's a better overall athlete. There's a lot to like about Colton Kowser. Maybe he's a better prospect. Uh, but in terms of production, Wilson did something in 2019 that Kowser just hasn't quite done yet in terms of just exploding for that type of production. So I think that's what gives, if you're kind of inclined to look at it that way, I think that's the argument you could make for Wilson over Kowser, but, but both of them, given they could be both be first round picks. I mean, both of them are very much in that, um, in that mix. And I think it's, it'll have to be a combination of things, right? Like it's, they have a massive year and it's also a year where, you know, let's say one of those guys you discuss doesn't have, you know, kind of takes a step back, doesn't have much of the, the year we expected. Maybe they're a little dinged up, stuff like that. And a guy like Matt McLean is, because I think you hit it right on the head. He has a nice year. The numbers are pretty good. But in order for a guy like that to win it, he's probably got to hit above 400 or really break out from a power standpoint to be in the mix. And so maybe his numbers just aren't quite there. And the combination of those things allows a player like Kowser or Wilson to get into that mix. But um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that either of them could get there. I will say as a shortstop, McLean's bar is going to be a little bit lower than that, I think, is assuming he's a good defensive shortstop, which I have no doubt that he will be. Uh, but it's hard to win it as a shortstop, uh, frankly, just because you have so many defensive responsibilities to get to that offensive threshold. It's uh, it's it's really hard to do. So that that's it's not a thing that's going against McLean. It's just a thing that is a reality when it comes to him. Uh, yeah, with Wilson and Kowser, it, it's going to be about leaving no doubt. I think because that that was really what happened with Lewis was he that that year was a little lacking and true top tier candidates i think we were debating zach collins as one of the other finalists i think there was a third player in there as well but i that was a while ago um, and you know it just kind of wound up being like oh, look kyle lewis's numbers ultimately are clearly the best and we understood how good of a, of a player he was and that's been borne out if, you know, you see what he did in the big leagues to this point. Um, you know, so knowing all of those things kind of just helped overcome whatever, you know, this, this SoCon's a pretty offensive league. And, and you just have to take that context into it when, when you're considering these awards. The Southland and the Sunbelt don't really have that reputation coming into it. So you know, especially like you said, with, with the Sun Belt, there's some pretty good pitching. There's there's really good competition happening in that conference. If Ethan Wilson does what he's capable of doing, yeah, he probably puts himself into the mix and we probably don't spend a whole lot of time talking about like, well, what about Sun Belt pitching? Um, it would be a little different with the Southland, I think, but 
yeah, my concern with Kowser would just be getting pitched around. Uh, is he going to have a chance to really take advantage of the tools to put himself with the kinds of offensive numbers that, uh, that it would take? It's a great point. You know, having done the Southland preview, I mean, that, that actually, believe it or not, I think people might be surprised to find out that, you know, you, you look at a team with Colton Kowser on it and the questions that Sam Houston has that are most pressing to me are offensive. And Jack Rogers is a really nice player. Outside of that, though, he, you know, and Kowser himself in 2020, the numbers aren't very good. I mean, I don't have any doubt he would have gotten going, but he, at the time, you know, he was hitting 255. And so uh, he, he wasn't getting a lot of support and he was off to a slow start in, in 2020. So I think that concern is, is certainly warranted. Yeah. Uh, the, it, it'll be an interesting race to track. There are often times as somebody off the board that gets into it. I'm not going to try and predict who that would be this year, but uh, there oftentimes is, is somebody a little off the board, but this year there, there's a lot of talent here in these upper echelon players. I, I would imagine that's where, that's where you're looking. Um, let's go to pitchers here. We don't actually give a pitcher of the year award. They are eligible for the position, uh, or sorry, the player of the year award, just like the position players at the end of the year. But here we break them up, give a, give a little more recognition around the, around it to who to watch this year. So Joe, you picked Kumar Rocker. Um, I have no argument against that. I picked Kumar Rocker a year ago. Uh, frankly, I could have done it again. I went with Jaden Hill though. I like Jaden Hill's upside. I think he's an absolutely fantastic pitcher. Uh, but again, I have no arguments against Kumar Rocker as, as pitcher of the year. I think there are a ton of great candidates for this award. Um, happy to uh to spotlight both both rocker and hill yeah, i'm not sure what would be what i would like to see more because i think these are two really fun scenarios that could play out i mean and on one hand if and i guess they could both be true i mean I, they don't have to both be you know the best pitcher in college baseball for these scenarios to play out but you know with kumar rocker i mean one more it's a shame we didn't see the full 2020 season with him, but he, you know, he could go out if he does something like he, what he did in, in 2019, more so over the regular season. Cause don't forget, I mean, for as much as he did at the end of the season, like they were pretty careful with rocker's role early on in, in 19. So, you know, I've always kind of wondered what the alternate universe version of his 2019 season is. If let's say Vanderbilt gets eliminated in a regional and we don't, he doesn't does, he doesn't do what he did against Duke and then doesn't pitch well in Omaha. And, and those are all of course, you know, not relevant because the, he did, but that would again as freshman of the year, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So that I mean, that's just a really kind of interesting alternate history situation there. And I don't think it would take much of the shine off of Rocker as a prospect, but we might be thinking of him a little bit differently because we might be having the conversation now of like, boy, you know, we, we're not exactly sure what to expect here from him. So uh that's a little bit of an aside. But you know, if he has another season in 2021, like what we saw towards the end of 2019 you know, Rocker gets drafted 1-1 and, and, you know, Vanderbilt goes back to Omaha, whatever, and the numbers are great. And, and he really truly becomes one of just the most memorable college baseball players in, in modern history. I mean, where he ranks all time is a conversation for their day, if that ends up happening, but just given his fame and what he accomplished and some of his big moments, like he certainly would be in that, that mix. And that would be really cool. And, you know, on the other hand though, like Jaden Hill is such an electric arm and we've seen it in, in spurts and um, you know, doing that for, for LSU. And first of all, it would, it really, you know, raise the ceiling for what LSU can accomplish. A lot of our optimism about them this year is, is based on Jaden Hill taking that step forward. And, and I also think that would be really cool because I, I want to see 
Jaden Hill working at full capacity and efficiency and, and doing what he does and, and really just becoming one of the best dudes in college baseball on the mound. So I think either one of these guys doing what we expect them to do would be really awesome for the sport. And, and like I said, it doesn't mean just because one does, the other doesn't. So um, I, I, you know, the, the choice of, of Jaden Hill is, is, is a good one. Um, there are no real shortage, as we've talked about before, of pitcher of the year candidates or you know, people for, the, for this, this uh, preseason award anyway, just because for all the talk of not being exactly sure what to expect from a position player standpoint, it, it does feel like we've just got a really good, a good group of pitchers coming back for the 21 season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can throw into this mix uh, Rocker's teammate, Jack Leiter. That one is more of a pick just based on talent were you to go in that direction. Uh, obviously, our scouting director panel went in that direction in terms of first-team All-Americans with, with Leiter getting uh, selected for that. Now, what he did as a freshman was great, but you know, I feel like we've talked about this before. What, what he hasn't done is thrown a pitch in an SEC game yet. So... Uh, it remains to be seen what he's got there. No fault of his own. He didn't do that, of course, but uh, a little bit more of an unknown. Ty Madden making a huge jump in terms of velocity, uh, you know, big time, big time arm there, the front of the Texas rotation. Um, Joe, obviously, I, I, I bet you considered Jordan Wicks as uh, the, the driver of the uh, K-State bandwagon right now. Um, you know, the, 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 the number of, great pitchers in college baseball this year is is very high and i'm excited to see how how this race in particular plays out um you know and, and in terms of the the player of the year because honestly if you made me pick just combine the the pitchers and the hitters who's my player of the year pick i i don't know that i still pick Benelis. you know i you might have to go with an arm at that point the 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 pitchers this year are, are just fantastic yeah, we probably don't have enough time for me to really go on about Jordan Wicks. Um, but he, you know, he, he, <laughs> I think he's just, I mean, truth be told, like shtick aside, because it is a shtick that I'm really high on Kansas State, and I am, like there's truth in that. Um, but I think Jordan Wicks, I think, is just going to be criminally underrated um, because he hasn't really been a name throughout well, his time. Who is going to, like good. scouts are going to watch, but like when, unless K-State has the year that you think they're capable of, and they fully well could, I don't know when average college baseball fan is going to see K-State. Like they're not, they're not on SEC network. They're not going to get showcased on ESPN because of that. Not on ACC network. Um, I think that all of the big 12 games are on ESPN plus this year. Right. But, um, you know, unless you go looking for that one, it's going to be buried uh, a lot. And, you know, that's really, it's really too bad because he is a, a special talent. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, all, all Big 12, except for Texas, of course, LHN has those rights, but everything else, ESPN Plus, which is, is good for the league, but you're right. Honestly, better for him because uh, it's a lot easier yeah. to get plus than his LHN, I think. Yeah, no, you're right. Actually, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I might have that, to but... see about like how I'm going to watch Time Adam starts after this opening weekend. Yeah, that is that is a good point. I hadn't really thought through it that way, but but you're, you're absolutely right. But yeah, he's just, he's a guy, you know, I liked him as a freshman and part of the reason why I have an affinity for K-State is I remember at the big 12 tournament in 2019, looking at this roster and, and kind of looking at the fact that everyone was pretty young and they had kind of overachieved to even get to the big 12 tournament. And they played pretty well there. And they had this Wicks kid who was freshman of the year. And like, I'm also, 
I'm also just kind of partial to pitchers who like with good changeups. <laughs> it's kind of one of my biases and his is just nasty. And so there, there is that as well. But yes, I mean, a, 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 he, he would all, he's on the periphery of this discussion, but I think the fact that a pitcher like him exists at a place like K-State, I think is kind of a, uh, a symptom of, of the situation we have where we just have a lot of, just a glut of choices uh, of pitchers we could have chosen and, and reasonably chosen for this honor. This is something I'm going to be researching over the next few months. I don't expect you to have much of an answer here, Joe, but you know, Rocker and Hill are both black and, you know, black pitchers are rare at, at like, in terms of being elite starting pitchers in major league baseball. Um, I feel like again, research needed that they're increasingly becoming more common lately. Uh, you think about Sabathia and Stroman, some of these other guys, but it's still pretty rare in college baseball that we would be talking about a couple guys like them at this level. Um, you know, David Price, of course, comes to mind, but other than that, I don't know how many, you know, black starting pitchers have been in the mix as being the best pitcher in the country. And so I think that's really cool to see, first of all, and, and something I definitely want to explore more as the season goes on. You know, Dylan Tate at UCSB in 2015 was kind of in that mix, but coming into the season, Tate was not regarded that way. Uh, he kind of pitched his way into that, as I recall. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhat similar for Justin Dunn at Boston College, uh, either the same year or then I guess that was the next year. Um, you know, he didn't even start the year as a starting pitcher. Uh, you know, but those are two that come to mind recently and, and they were, they were not at this level. So, uh, yeah, that, that's just something I'm filing away and I imagine you'll read more from me about at some point this year. That is interesting. It's, it's a good point. And I think it's, it's, it's great. Anything we can do to kind of increase the diversity in college baseball, a topic you and I have talked about, um, a little bit on this podcast this year and a topic that I think you and I both feel strongly about. And I think it, it matters not just in terms of the number of players, but having players like those two in prominent roles prepared to be drafted prominently into the major leagues and, and that type of representation really matters. And so I, that is a big deal. I will throw one more name. This is going to be an old school name. Your, your former, uh, former BA staffer and your former colleague, John Manuel will appreciate this name. Are you ready for this name? Oh, I'm ready. Dewan Brazelton. Are you familiar okay. with Dewan? I, I am. I, 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 I could not place a year on that, but, but yeah. Oh, like three middle Tennessee state. Okay. Um, but yeah, that sounds like, about right. Yeah. But he had, I don't remember the, all the details of it, but I, he was one of the first pitchers that I really remember um, when I was getting into college baseball, kind of like a, I don't want to call a pop-up guy necessarily, but I guess by definition he probably was because he was at, at middle Tennessee, but you know, he had this just really big breakout year as a, as a draft eligible guy. And, and then obviously, you know, his pro career didn't end up working out as well as, as he would have liked. But um, that, that's the name that came to mind from a long, long time ago in terms of a, a, a black ace pitcher in college baseball that was ended up being um, ended up being prominent. So uh, that's that's one for the uh, old school audience. John Duplantier, also, John Duplantier yeah. also fits this this mold. But, you know, injuries rice being a little down at the time, not as far down as they are right now, kind of kept him a little more under the radar 
Um, but yeah, I, if if any of our listeners, if I'm if I'm missing anyone, please let me know. Help help me help me through this project. Um, it is something that I really want to get into, and um, I, I I just think it's really it could be a, a special situation with those two guys, especially. Cleaning up uh, the Dewan Brazelton file here. Uh, 2001 was his big pop-up year uh, for Middle Tennessee State. Uh, numbers that year, uh, he went. Now, okay, let me give you this actually first. So first year Middle Tennessee, like he was a nice arm his first two years. First year goes eight and five, 480 ERA, strikes out 83 guys and 84 and a third. Next year comes back and it's pretty similar. Seven and three, 483 ERA, strikes out 98 guys and 98 and two thirds innings. Comes back as a junior, goes 13 and two with a 142 ERA, strikes out 154 and 127 innings through 11 complete games. Wow. So it's pretty good. Those are pretty good numbers. <laughs> 11 CGs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, he, I think I read, so I read and just quickly while you were talking there, I was reading a, a page on the MTSU athletics website where he went into the MTSU hall of fame. And uh, he, had, I think he had 22 career complete games and he won 73% of the games he started, which is a pretty high number for an MTSU program that I believe got to a regional in a one, but it's not like that was an MTSU program that was, you know, winning 90% of its games. Sure. Fan, fantastic pull there. I, I'm sure the, the old school fans appreciate that one. All right, let's move on to, uh, to freshman of the year. Um, plenty of, of good choices here as well. We've been over many times, just the amount of talent in the newcomers there are to college baseball. And, and I guess I should note here that this is really more of a newcomer of the year, it says freshman of the year, but uh, we did not include second year freshmen for this uh, this consideration. We just felt like it's more of a service to you, the reader, if I don't tell you that Connor Prelip or Hunter Barco are really good. Uh, they are um, eligible for our awards this year, uh, but they are not, we, we were not considering them uh, here in the, the preseason again as a service to, to the readers trying to draw your attention towards uh, the, the true newcomers in college baseball to watch for. So with that in mind, I picked Tanner Witt, uh, Texas two-way player, right-hander slash infielder. You'll potentially see him in the rotation and at third base, his exact role is still a little bit to be worked out uh, due to his two-way nature. And then Joe, you went with Kevin Parada, Georgia Tech catcher, uh, next up in that, that Georgia Tech catching pipeline, uh, just an incredible hitter. We'll see how much catching he does because there are good catchers at Georgia Tech already, but there's no denying the fact that his bat will be in the lineup somewhere. Yeah, a little bit of a, a log jam there with, with uh, catching it at Georgia Tech, and it's understandable why really talented players would want to go catch it Georgia Tech given their history. But yeah, early returns on him, good. Uh, you know, really positive about how good he's been already with the bat on campus. So like that track record and like the track record of Georgia tech, just offensively in general. So you, you kind of, you throw all that in a pot, you know, Georgia tech's track record of, of putting out good offensive lineups. The the fact that so far reports are good for, for what he's been on campus. And you throw in the, the prep track record, which is that he was one of the better players not to get drafted in 2020. And, um, you know, speaking of the second time he's come up in the podcast, like Carlos Plaza, this is another guy of his that he was really big on going to the draft and was, um, you know, 
surprised to, to see him drop to a point where he made the decision to go to campus. So um, those things, of course, go hand in hand, but um, there obviously is, is a line somewhere where he dropped to a point where he was going to go to Georgia Tech. And so, yeah, I mean, it's um, I, I think he's also going to be in a situation where because the rest of that lineup is pretty proven and I think they're going to be offensive in general. I think it's a situation where, you know, he's not going to be in a position where he's going to get starting started. He's not going to start getting pitched around early on if he gets off to a hot start. And I think that that'll kind of help ease him into things. The fact that he's not going to be the focal point in a lineup right away. Yeah, I, I think that definitely does help uh, prodigious power. He's going to put up some numbers. I think uh, he's uh just a really, really impressive hitter, and uh, wherever they play him, I'm sure he'll be he'll be fine, uh, if not better than fine uh, defensively. Um, but that that's a that's an intriguing situation to watch, just in terms of what Georgia Tech's going to do with him. And and I feel the same way about Tanner Witt. You know, I however Texas uses him, I'm very confident that he's going to excel. Uh, incredible all-around tools. The reports from the fall were great. There was a lot of, I think, th- there were some questions like, why did he not get drafted? And I feel like the evaluations on him now are a little bit better than they were uh, going into the draft. We'll, we'll see, again, whether he does more on the mound or more at the plate this year. But uh, I, I just feel very confident that he's going to going to do something big in, in whatever role the Longhorns uh, use him in. We mentioned, I think that was on the last podcast, that Cade Horton, Oklahoma's two-way player, uh, is uh, is out for the season after undergoing Tommy John. Joe, I'm sure you considered uh, him as well. Is there anyone else that you were, you were kicking around for freshmen? I mean, those were the big ones. Actually, interestingly, Tanner Witt was, was one of the other was one of the other guys, um, you know, in that mix. So we, we kind of all circled the same, the same guys there. The tough thing that's tough about, you know, we, we didn't really go pitcher here, except I, I guess, you know, potential two-way guys and, and Witt and, and Horton, although it remains to be seen what the, the mix is there, but pitcher is just tough because you could be really, really talented. I mean, no one short of, of Kumar Rocker, right? I mean, we just, just talked about the fact that they kind of eased him into things and it got to a point where it was just very clear that he was, the most electric arm on that staff at some point. And, and it just became to the point where they, they, they knew he was ready for that, but pitchers are just tough. You can be a really talented, a really highly regarded prep arm. And, you know, you might just get kind of brought along slowly in it. So it, it's just hard for those freshman pitchers to really start building a case early on. And the ones who really break out like a Kumar rocker just have to do so much on the back end to, to sometimes overcome that early on. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but the last two times we actually gave out the award, it did go to a pitcher. Mm. Uh, it was it was able the year before. Um, it had been mostly bats before that, though. Uh, if you just look at the last decade, there are four pitcher only, um, two two way guys, uh, and then I guess that makes four hitter only. Uh, so reasonably evenly divided. Uh, but I do think it's generally kind of difficult for the uh, for for the pitchers. Um, it, it worked out for for Abel and Rocker because they were able to do it in Omaha. Uh, but right. if you think Rocker started the year like cautiously and everything, just go remind yourself of how Kevin Abel started his freshman year. Things were things were rocky, 
and he wasn't established as a starter until pretty late in the season. So uh, it's not easy. I, I, I don't, I'm not suggesting it's, it was easy for Seth Beer to establish himself as a hitter, but that was a guy that ran away with the award and, you know, of course is a, is a hitter. So that's, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I, I would throw in a few other names. I mean, the obvious other name is Dylan Cruz. LSU's outfielder. We've talked a lot about Dylan Cruz over uh, the last year, probably, I feel like. At least I've talked a lot about Dylan Cruz, one of the the best players to make it to college, ready-made replacement for Daniel Cabrera there in their lineup. If he does what is expected, uh, he's going to be in the mix, definitely. Uh, And then, you know, if you are looking at pitchers, Carson Montgomery is the best highest rated player to make it to campus a little uncertain what Florida state's going to do with him. I would guess like we're talking about with Abel and rocker, it'll be cautious at first, but if you told me he was in their rotation by April, I would absolutely believe it. Um, Miami with uh, Victor Medeiros, Alejandro Rosario, their rotation, as we've talked about before, pretty wide open right now. Either one of those guys, uh, you know, could state their case as well. Um, you know, and then there are there's a variety of really good arms around the country. Those are just some of the most high-profile ones. If you're looking for somebody a little more under the radar, Drew Bowser shouldn't be under the radar, but he is because Stanford has, you know, been – Stanford didn't really have a fall – and they were bad last year, so they aren't ranked this year. But Drew Bowser has a ton of talent as an infielder. I'll be interested to see how they use him. And uh, you know, Florida, it's going to be hard to break through at Florida. But in Sterling Thompson and Colby Halter, they have two outstanding hitters uh, that they're excited about. And if they're excited about them, considering everything else that Florida has already to be excited about, uh, I, I'm definitely taking notice of that uh, as well. I, I I could keep going here. There are, you might've heard, there are a lot of really talented freshmen in, in college baseball right now. Um, I guess Ole Miss and Jacob Gonzalez, uh, he was one statistically their best hitter this fall, I think. That's what Mike Bianco told me. So that's loud considering what they have back. And uh, I'll just go one more here with um, uh, Cole Foster at Auburn. I lied. Here's another one. Nolan McLean, two-way, super athletic at Oklahoma State. No idea how that's going to shake out. They could just do so many different things with him. Uh, But all of those guys, super, super talented. I appreciate Teddy for doing the heavy lifting there for a question that Joe was clearly not really super prepared to answer. So (laughs) Teddy had to, Teddy really had to like take the ball from me and run a lot. Well, you know, when you write, Uh, I, I wrote 85 like, like I went in depth on 85 recruiting classes this fall. You can read them all at baseballamerica.com. So if you do that, like you've got, I, I've, I've got a lot of buildup knowledge. I'm, I'm ready to run out at any given time about this year's yeah, it was, newcomers. So it was, it was definitely needed here. I, I quickly, I, I will say that <laughs> Drew Bowser is a really interesting one. And I think it's interesting because among all the names you name, just because if it's one of those ones where if Stanford is good again, you have to assume it's, because in large part guys like Drew Bowser have made an instant impact because um, you know, we've said this before, it's just Stanford's going to have to go so far from where they were last year to where they 
are going to go in order to be in the mix for the postseason. And a guy like Bowser is probably going to have to be a big part of it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That if if Stanford is a, a team that we're talking about, um, some of the newcomers and last year's freshmen, uh, who again will be eligible for this, you know, the, the freshman All Americans and all the rest of it, in uh, in the postseason version of these awards, Stanford has some young players to watch out for, and Bowser's the most famous of them. Uh, but yeah, right now hard to know precisely what's going on at Stanford uh, just because of such a strange fall, um, even by COVID standards. I would, I would say Stanford had, had one of the harder times, you know, getting on the field and practicing and, and doing all the rest of that. So remains to be seen how they're going to come out out of the gate, but he is a player to watch both this year and in the future. All right, let's circle back now to, uh, we're talking about Stanford. Uh, neither one of us picked them as our Omaha sleeper, but we could have. They they are not ranked in the top twenty-five, and uh, we we both think they might be pretty good. But Joe, you went with Ohio State. I went with Notre Dame. Obviously, a lot of Midwestern flavor there. Um, we've kind of talked about Notre Dame on the podcast. Joe and I famously have a difference of opinion on on the Domers. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm pretty high on the upside there, but Joe. Uh, Ohio State is a team that I was super, super high on last year. You were into last year as well. We ranked them in the, the preseason top 25. It was a slow start, though, and uh, we didn't get a chance to see how they were going to recover from it. I'm sure they were going to, but now they bring back what, again, looks to be one of the top rotations in the Big Ten and potentially beyond. Yeah, I think what you what you end up seeing, a lot of my optimism here is that we were both pretty high on this team going in last year, like you mentioned, and then they got off to that slow start. So I think just strictly some reversion to the mean there, because it felt like they were really underplaying their talent last year. I mean, they had that series against Georgia tech where they just didn't, they, they weren't even playing the same game as Georgia tech. And that, that was kind of bizarre. And so I think there's a little bit of reversion to the mean here where Ohio state comes back to a, a level more like what we expected last year. And then I think because of, of what they bring back are able to kind of take another step, above that. Now, beyond that, you also look at the rotation and Seth Lonsway is a pitcher that would not be on campus again if it was a full draft. I think that's pretty clear. Could, you know, it's not. You know, he actually, like, it's easy to say that and you're probably mm -hmm. right, but like, mm -hmm. I wonder because that's a guy that had an extra, like he was a red shirt. So he already right. had a little bit more leverage than, than most folks. And if he, you know, we had him ranked, I think, 77th on the 500. And if he was valuing himself so much higher than that, that teams didn't want to take him already. Like, I wonder, I, I wonder if he wouldn't have taken advantage of, Nick, of that redshirt year to come back anyway. Very well could be. Good point there. Um, but, you know, so he's he's a dominant arm that, that could be the Big Ten pitcher of, of the year. That that would not be strange at all. And he's got good help with Garrett Burhan and Griffin Smith that are both veterans who have been around the block. There's also some potential breakouts on the pitching staff. When you look at a guy like TJ Brock, who's the, the really the biggest arm on the staff, uh, you know, he could be ready for, for a breakout. I think that helps uh, offense. I think is, is where some of that, I think reversion to the mean goes because for the most part, you know, Lonsway was kind of as expected. Burhan's numbers weren't good last year, but Griffin Smith's were, were right where you would kind of would expect them to be. But there were a lot of guys who had a little bit underwhelming seasons in 2020 from an offensive standpoint, Connor Pohl and, Zach DeZenzo and Brent Totis, guys like that. So I think that's where you see a lot of that improvement. I don't know that it's 
super powerful offense or, you know, one that's going to blow folks away. But I, I just think that pitching staff is so good. That's exactly the type of team that I could see uh, making an Omaha run. And the, the variables, of course, here that make Ohio State a wild card or the Big Ten scheduling situation. They're, they're starting late. They're only playing conference games. We don't know what that means for how good Ohio State will have to be to put itself in position to be an at-large team should they end up needing an at-large bid. And then what that also means for how prepared they will, they will be for postseason play. You know, we're going to see how good they are within the Big Ten, but we're not going to see much outside of that. We're not going to see anything outside of that. So that does make them a little bit of a wild card choice, but I just think the pitching staff in particular is ready to be the type of team that could get to Omaha. Yeah. I mean, the upside is, is clear to me. I just, it, it, it's a little hard just knowing, you know, we, we've talked about how hard it's going to be for the big 10 just in general right now. Um, and then you consider that this was a team that underperformed last year. I, I'll be, be interested to see how the Buckeyes come out. I, I, I'm there for the upside. Absolutely. Um, Joe, who else, uh, who else did you have in the mix on this one? One of my other ones was Oklahoma state and Oklahoma state almost feels like a little bit of cheating just because they are so consistent year after year that it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Oklahoma state could get to, could get to Omaha. But I think, I think they're a team that is maybe like a, you take what they were last year. They're, they're more or less kind of the same team they were last year, but I, I like this group a little bit better because some of the players that really took a step last year and established themselves. And then you, you add to that that the pitching staff is a year older, a year more mature. I think that maybe takes Oklahoma state to a level above what they could have been last year. So that's a, um, that's a team that I think is, is certainly in, in the mix here. Um, I, I think Pepperdine is another one. We've talked about them a little bit. They were a team that we could easily have had ranked in the top 25, but if, you know, if they kind of come out and play like they did last year, where it's like, hey, this is not your father's Pepperdine team that's going to try to win games three to two. Like, this is a team that actually has some some physical players on it that would not look out of place in, an, in a good SEC lineup. I think that's certainly a team that could um, could make that kind of run. I think uh, another, another Big Ten team that's kind of in that mix is, is Maryland. Um, they have all the same uncertainties that Ohio State does, but you want to talk about pitching staffs that are high, high, high end. Maryland's got one of them and they've got a, like a guy in the lineup in Maxwell Costas, who is one of the better first basemen in the country and should provide a lot of pop. Um, so there were a lot of places I could go with this. And I think part of the reason is not just because the obvious reason is because college baseball is incredibly talented this year. So you can pick any random team we have, you know, projected to be a three seed in a regional and you could squint your eyes hard enough and come up with a reason why they could get to Omaha. But I also think, um, you know, I also think beyond that, it is the fact that there is, there's just so much general uncertainty, I think, about how the season's going to play out that I think it's, it's, a, lot e- it's a lot easier for me to not get locked into thinking that this, the results of the season are as hard-coded as they might be in other years where you come in feeling like um, we kind of know who the best teams are going to be. This year, there's, uh, you could talk me into a lot of different scenarios, and I think that's kind of what makes it um, part of what makes it so fun. One of the big cheats for me, if I'd wanted it, I feel like I t- pick this team every other year, basically. So we'll see you next year. Indiana, um, like they they are our number two projected finisher in the Big Ten. There's a lot coming back. There's a lot of talent. You're looking at an outfielder like Grant Richardson and uh, you know impressive starting rotation. Gabe Bierman is a, just a really experienced 
uh, starter. And then you're throwing McCade Brown coming off of a, a nice summer breakout. If he's able to carry that into the spring, he gives them a legit guy at the front of the rotation. You get some guys back like Cole Barr uh, in the heart of the order, Jeremy Houston, who we had on the podcast, uh, you know, just what he brings to the team defensively. They get some transfers. I like that's a team that that's definitely in the mix, but uh, I would have felt like definitely cheating if I had picked them because they're a team that very easily could have also ranked in the top 25. So I went a different route. Um, Boston College deserves a shout out here. I feel like if you haven't realized how much we think of Boston College's upside, though, um, like I, this is not the, the not the place for me to tell you. Like we have we have a whole feature uh, in the college preview issue about BC's upside. So I encourage you to check that out if you're you're looking for understanding why the Eagles uh, are are a team with uh, with a lot of potential this season. You know, one interesting team that I don't really know what to do with it coming from the ACC is Wake Forest. Uh, I, I think that you know when you look at some of the returning hitters they have big time potential there. The question is, will they have enough pitching? And, you know, of course, in Ryan Cusick, they've got a, a, a big time guy at the front of the rotation, but will they have enough around him? If they do, uh, this could be a really nice year for, for the Deeks. So uh, you can throw them into the mix. And I, I talked during the, our SEC preview about how every team in the SEC West was loaded. Well, the two that we didn't rank were Auburn and AM. And uh, I would be stunned if I saw either of them in Omaha, not saying that they'll make it there, but I'm just saying like seeing them in Omaha would not come as a surprise to me. I'll throw a couple like super hipster specials in here. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get weird. Um, so if you're looking for like a, so I'm looking at our preseason field. Give me the four seed just, that's going to Omaha. Yeah, here we go. Okay. So uh, let me pick one. I was going to give you two. I guess I still will, but let me pick. Okay. So I'll go McNeese state. There are two here that I think you could choose from. McNeese State is one of them. I think it's a combination of an old, 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 old lineup. I mean, we talked about this in the podcast soon after the eligibility relief was passed, that that is a team that their seniors not just came back, their seniors all emphatically were like, yes, we're coming back. And so that is a, a very old lineup. It's already the best lineup in, in the Southland. I don't think if they, if they play up to their quality, I don't think it's close. That's the best lineup in the Southland. They also have some high-end pitching. You know, Will Dion is a guy to watch at the front of their rotation, who was a big-time closer, bullpen guy for them a couple of years ago. Moved to the rotation last year. It was kind of up and down, but he's a, he's a big arm, and now he's he's experienced and, and, and should be ready for a big year. So I think you anytime you have in, in these mid-majors and low-major teams, if you have like a real dude on Fridays and you have an old team, I think you're a live dog. And so I think McNeese State is that and then some because I think they're several standard deviations older than they normally are. And Will Dion's a, a better arm than a lot of times what we're talking about here. So that's that's one. That's my number one there. The other one, and, and Teddy knows as much about this team as I do, and that's Sam. Yeah, I, if and you had mentioned Sam, right? I was going to. Yeah, it's, it's a good lineup. You know, Brooks Carlson, Sonny DiChiara, a lot of guys who have been around forever, it seems like. And then you got Samuel Strickland at the front of the rotation and Though that that is kind of the formula, and I think it helps those teams both. By the way, that while those are both in leagues that are probably going to be one bid leagues, those are both competitive leagues, and I think that really helps too. That, that they're not going to be able to really cruise through those leagues. Now that might hurt their chances to get into the postseason, but assuming they get there, 
those teams are going to have been tested by the time it's it's all said and done. So I think I've mentioned it before that the, one of the last things that I wrote during the season that never made it online because the season ended was I was writing a piece about how Samford was a team that, that you should be watching out for. And all of the things that you just said are true. But the thing about Samford last year was they were off to a really great start and they didn't have a couple of their best pitchers. They, they had gone uh, through some, a bit of an injury bug early on. And so those guys now should be back. We're talking about Zach Hester and Jesse McCord. If they are back in the rotation with, uh, you know, with Stam Strickland, uh, that's, uh, that's big time for them. And they returned their closer as well from an injury. If, they, if they're back to full health, that's huge. And then the other thing is Samford returns like almost literally everyone. So the guys that replaced them last year that stepped up into bigger roles, they're back as well. And so however you, they go about sorting through that, whether that means bringing guys along slowly or you know, putting you know, somebody in the bullpen that, that does have success as a starter, they're going to be better for it. Uh, on the pitching mound. And then last year they were ahead of the curve offensively. Like there was supposed to be a team that was a pitching dominated team. They wound up being very offensive and carrying that banged up pitching staff. So again, now getting that, that pitching healthy, getting it a little deeper, they're going to be so much better for it. And uh, I really like what, what Samford's potential is this year. And, and that's a team that has postseason experience as well. It wasn't that long ago that they were in the Tallahassee regional. There's still some guys on, on the team with postseason experience. So uh, I, uh, I I fully endorse both McNeese and Sanford. I definitely said last year on the podcast somewhere that I thought McNeese was a team that could make some noise. And like you said, the, the whole team is back now. So they had as difficult a fall as anyone uh, dealing with the hurricane stuff, but, you know, they've, uh, if, assuming they're able to rebound from that, and, and I have no doubt that they will, uh, they're a team that's that's very talented and very deep. <laughs> all right, Joe. Um, we uh, we ran through all of our all of our picks here. The the one thing that we don't pick that we do give at the end of the year is uh, is a coach of the year. We don't pick it because it's kind of crazy to uh, to name a preseason coach of the year. But uh, you know, if, if uh, you given any you got, you got any inkling on, uh, on where you might head if uh, if we did have to to do a preseason coach of the year? Yeah, it's just hard because it's, you know, it's it's what are you rewarding with coach of the year, right? Is it just the team that wins a championship or is it the coach that most overachieves kind of what the expectations are? But, you know, I, I look at a guy like Gino Damari at Miami as, as a guy who seems like a, a likely candidate when you think about the fact that it's a team that could win could conceivably win a national championship. Now that would be a little bit of a surprise given how young they are, but you know, it wouldn't take uh, miracles for that to happen with the talent they have, but because it is such a young team, I think expectations are a little bit tempered from where they would, they obviously were last year. So I think when you, when you try to find the Venn diagram of is this team going to win enough to put this coach in position? And also is this a good enough story to where it, it ends up, you know, earning coach of the year honors, I think, that Miami and Gino Amari feels like a, something that fits in the, the middle of that Venn diagram there. I will, you know, that's a, that's a good solid pick. If they make it to Omaha, he'll definitely be in the mix. Um, that's generally a standard for our award is making it to Omaha. 
Uh, I will note that it's been 10 years since Kevin O'Sullivan won uh, Coach of the Year. We don't double up often. Uh, it's rare. Augie has two. Mike Martin has two. Ray Tanner has two. Gene Stevenson has two. Skip Bertman has two. Um, Dave Snow has two. He's uh, maybe the odd man of that group. They were they were early on. Yeah, shout um, out Dave Snow. <laughs> Talk about some old uh, references. Since, since then, things have tightened up in terms of getting getting a second one. But it's been 10 years. And I would say that if Florida is the team that we think it is, that Kevin O'Sullivan will definitely be in the mix. Uh, the other name that I would throw out there is Mike Bianco. Uh, if Ole Miss legitimately is a top four team in the country, I think that's absolutely a team or, or a coach that we would uh, we would have – in uh, in real consideration. Yeah, no, I, th- I think those are good. It's a good point about you know not having awarded um, Kevin O'Sullivan in a while because you know he's certainly a coach that if Florida is as good as they expect and they they cap everything off with a national title, certainly he's a he's a coach that would would start to really put himself in position with the the types of coaches you named that have won it won it twice. That would not be out of step, I, I wouldn't think. So. A lot to uh, a lot to consider here. We've uh, we've been rolling through all of our preseason content uh, for the last three weeks, I guess, into our fourth week. Uh, there's plenty to check out on the website. Uh, it's contained all in one nice uh, nice hub that they've put together for it. If you uh, if you go to the college page on baseballamerica.com, you will find it all linked out there. The top 25 team by team analyses. The conference previews for every conference, um, plenty of, of features and all America stuff that it, it's all there. So if you're, if you're looking to still get up to speed a little bit here before Friday, uh, I would, I would encourage you to, uh, to head over to baseballamerica.com or if you're a subscriber, your magazine should be getting to you, if not already there, I believe. So check it out in print. If, uh, if that's more of your jam, uh, we will be back here on the Baseball America College podcast later in the week to preview opening day. So make sure you're subs- make sure you are subscribed. It's a, it's a tough one there. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you, you get your podcasts, you can find us. And again, we will be back here later in the week to talk about opening weekend. Until then, uh, I want to thank everyone uh, for the download. Thank you to Rap Soto uh, for presenting the Baseball America podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.